This is Skip Miller, author of Outbounding, Win New Customers with Outbound Sales and End Your Dependence on Inbound Leads. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Skip Miller to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his latest book, Outbounding, Win New Customers with Outbound Sales and End Your Dependence on Inbound Leads, published by HarperCollins. Skip Miller is the founder and president of M3 Learning, a sales and sales management training company based in the heart of Silicon Valley. Skip has trained hundreds of companies in 38 countries. His clients read like a who's who in technology, including companies like Zoom, Apple, and Google. Outbounding is his seventh book. And interesting fact, Skip learned the hard way that being unprepared for cold calling is a surefire way to lose your job when he started his career in sales and quit after only one day on the job. Skip, congratulations on Outbounding and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Well, thank you, and what a great introduction on one of my failures in life. So yeah, it's a true story, but that, that's that's an intro. Thank you. <laughs> I think it gives you uh, more credibility because it's an acknowledgement that it is tough work doing outbound sales. Uh, it's very important work. Not many people want to do it, and those that can uh, do it just a little bit better than the others are going to succeed. What was that first job? What, what was it that you were selling in that first job where you thought, maybe this isn't for me? <laughs> I was selling sporting goods and they wanted me to go school to school. And, uh, and, um, I went to my first school and I was going to call on the athletic director or the head coach or something. And I turned around and said, I'm not doing this and went back and quit. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, you, you finally came back to sales in some way. Did you go find another sales job or did you go do something else for a while? Yeah, no, I did. So, um, I graduated from school, got a job with, uh, a company called McDonnell Douglas selling computer time sharing and went to training classes and then just kind of stuck it out. And, you know, I'd write a letter, <clears throat> wait for the letter to, 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 to get to the place that was, it was going. Then I'd call a couple of days later and say, did you get the letter? They said, no, I'd resend the letter. And it was weeks of, of efforts. And I'm like, this is just not working because I'm not filling my funnel or anything quick enough. So I just decided just to call and not use the letter as a crutch and just work my way up. So selling computer time sharing and selling computer-aided design and manufacturing systems, CAD CAM systems, and then off to the races we went. 
So you were picking up this device called a telephone? <laughs> which is which, which is still probably the best way because obviously, you know, emails are one-way communication vehicles and so are text messages. A, a telephone is still a great two-way communication vehicle and uh, people have a tendency to do anything, you know, it's easier to hit the send button than it is to when you call somebody and somebody goes, hello, and you go, boy, I'm not ready. And then you hang up the phone. You're so fearful of rejection. So yeah, I, I, I used the phone. I did. That's great. That's great. Well, daughter uh, graduated from college when she has got a sales job in New York City. And she said, hey, dad, this is kind of tough work. <laughs> I listen to this podcast, but I may play her just that one part to tell her that, you know, this can actually lead to something. Yeah, no, it, it does, believe it or not. And it, it's fun. Once you take the attitude of you're helping customers make money and they're, they're not making money or they're having problems that you might might be able to help, you know, when you take that attitude, you know, Doug, I, I started the book and I got about 20% through and I threw it away because prospecting, outbounding is, is a lot about attitude. So mm-hmm. I rewrote the book, focusing a little bit on, you know, the attitude you've got to have rather than it's something I have to do. So mm-hmm. if you have the right attitude, you can really jump, jump it and have a good time. Yes. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Let me just read this excerpt from uh, the preface. You write, in good economic times, customers are open to buying. They need to buy to fuel growth. Social media and marketing lead generation efforts have been doing a great job driving leads to companies' sales teams. The need for growth, coupled with advanced marketing lead generation technology, has created the perfect form. The concept of inbound marketing wasn't born until 2005, after the phrase was coined by HubSpot's co-founder and CEO, Brian Halligan. It began to show up in tiny blips and bleeps on the internet in 2007, but it wasn't until... 2012 that it really started to grow. The inbound sales efforts, follow up on inbound leads, have now become 40 to 100% of a company's sales lead generation efforts. However, as companies have farmed these early adopters, the easy inbound leads are drying up and the low-hanging fruit has started to disappear. Marketing and social media efforts are not yielding the results they previously attained. Lay on top of that the growth of the sales department. They hired a lot of people to keep up on the inbound leads and may have too many salespeople now chasing the same or fewer inbound leads than they had before. Companies are now forced to increase their outbounding or prospecting efforts to meet increasing quotas, both inside and outside teams. So Skip, what talk more about the problems that companies are now is it related to this uh, sort of perfect without a doubt i mean um we see it all the time here in, in silicon valley and, and really around the world it's okay you know in sales there's three sure things in life uh, it, well period there's death there's taxes and your quota is going up so <laughs> quotas are going up but the the number of inbound leads you know the low-hanging fruit's kind of gone so it's harder and harder to meet those number quotas so the quality is typically going down. So a salesperson's got to take, you know, the inbound leads. Now more and more aren't qualified, but hey, it's better than nothing. So they're following up on leads that are more tire kickers, fooling themselves that they've got stuff in the funnel. And so you're seeing, you know, pipeline accuracies drop. And all of a sudden, you know, after a quarter or two, when these, we have a phrase, Doug, that says yeses are great, noes are great, maybes will kill you. And, you know, there's too many maybes in the funnel 
And all of a sudden, you got 30, 40% maybe is in your funnel. And all of a sudden, it's like, uh oh, I'm going to have to do something to go fill my leads because what I got is not good enough. The quality is down. And these people have not been trained to go outbound and prospect. I, I, and here's the problem. So I was talking to a salesperson a while back and I said, How's it look for the year? And he goes, oh, I'll probably be about 20% short. I go, well, Great. What are you going to do about it? He goes, Well, I'm going to have to outbound. I go, well, How's that going for you? He goes, Well, I sent somebody an email last week. I'm waiting to hear back. I go, that, that's your outbounding effort, really? So the, the, the quality of the leads, obviously the low-hanging fruit's kind of gone. The quality, the quantity's kind of dropped. The quality's definitely dropped. But yet I'm getting leads, I'm following up. So I'm filling a lot of smoke in my funnels. And that's hurting people. And you saw that quite a bit in, in 2020. You're going to see it a lot in 2021. Yeah. Now, let's step back for a moment and explain or remind listeners, you say very clearly that inbound and outbound sales processes are quite different. But you also mentioned that it's rare than all the training you do that you see two different sales processes in companies. Yeah. Yeah. So remind folks how very different it is, particularly as it relates to the buyer. So let's look at it from a buyer standpoint, right? A buyer sits back and says, I have a problem. I, we recognize we have a problem. And it's typically what we call the above the line buyer, the C-suite buyer, who says, I can quantify that. You know, we're going to miss our goals by 20%. You know, we wanted to gain 20 market share points. We're going to gain 10. And we wanted to cut costs by 10%. We're only going to get 5%. What, they can quantify a problem. Mm-hmm. Once they've quantified the problem, they, go, they know they have to make a change. So they they put, put an RFP together. They start. So about 20, 30% of the buy process, 40% of the buy process is pretty much done. They've identified they've got a problem. They've been able to quantify it. They go, they're going out and out of vendors to find out what's happening. Mm-hmm. Inbound, you're knocking on someone's door who they don't know that they don't know. They don't know they might have a problem. They're not even thinking about it. So you have to generate that interest. And let's say you do that. You, you're, you're outbounding and you generate some interest for what you have. Then you have to help the customer quantify the problem. They're not, you know, I can't see somebody going up to the CFO of a company going, yeah, we figure we have a big problem and we need a lot of money. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, we have a problem that's this big and we need this much investment to fix the problem. And you're going to have to hold their hand and walk through it. So that initial couple things, what's the size of the problem? How do we fix it? And is it worth the investment to fix it? On an inbound lead, that's pretty much done. On an outbound, you have no idea where they are on that continuum. And that's the big difference we see. So inbound, right? Okay, take the lead, stage one, do a good you know, discovery, stage two, do a good presentation demo, stage three, do a good proposal, stage four, harass. I mean, that's, that's typically what we see. Yeah. Outbound, you got to generate all that stage zero stuff and, and you just can't jump to, hi, want to see a demo? Because, and that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. People have trained their people to go, hi, want to see a demo? Then your presentation, oh, they're really good. But without all that stage zero stuff, what's the size of the problem? Is it worth an investment to fix? You know, you're going to be going through the motions and they're going to be doing presentations and demonstrations, but it's going to stop because there's no problem. Mm-hmm. But it's my sense that there's more opportunities with those outbounders who don't know they're maybe standing on an anthill. What happens is if you outbound 
especially to what we call again the about the above the line buyers, the C suite, and the above the line buyer, the VP of sales, the VP of marketing, the CMO, CFO, whoever. You identify a problem, you size it. Watch how fast the deal goes down. Mm-hmm. It, because the C-suite, right, the above-the-line buyer is going, hey, we have a problem, all right? This thing's going to cost me $20 million this year, and for $50,000, I can make a dent in this. I mean, this is a no-brainer. Let's go. So yeah. that's what – a quick story. We, uh, a couple of years ago, like in November, December timeframe, we're working with a company in Seattle. And in the room was a uh, VP of sales and a president. And we told them what's going on. They go, this is great. Why don't we start the training in like March, April? <clears throat> that's fine. Maybe if you want to start the training in March, April, that's fine. But let me ask you a question. Next year, how much is your quota going up? And the VP of sales goes, well, we're going to grow by 20%. I go, great. Good luck on that one. I said, so why would you be okay with nine? And the, the president looked at me and says, what do you mean? I go, well, if you're going to try to grow 20% next year, you're going to grow 20% and you're going to take a risk by saying, I'm going to try to get that number with nine months of smart people and three months with stupid people because you're paying me to make your people smart. And why wouldn't you want 12 months of smart people as opposed to three months of stupid people and nine months of smart people? Why would you take that risk? And he's like, boy, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) People don't know they have a problem until you work with them and try to quantify it. Boom, deals are a lot done a lot faster. Yes. Now, one of my favorite things uh, from the book was this, what you call the ATL and the BTL, the, the above the line and the below the line. And I believe it came out in a previous book. But for me, it armed me with this lens to understand so clearly every sales situation I've ever been in. <laughs> I've been now able to go back and say, oh, well, those were all BTLs and those were all ATLs. Explain for the listener what the ATL, BTL is, and what the different uh, motivations are, because they really seem like two uh, sides of the same coin. I, I'm on a mission to destroy the term decision maker. Oh, yeah. I, think, I think there's, because I think there's two, right? There's the below the line buyer who's responsible for the features and the functions and, and what, what has to happen in the service and the support. And there's the above the line buyer who says, you know, I got a $20 million problem. And I can see where this is going to make a dent in that. So how much does this cost? 50 grand? What, 52 grand? I don't care. So the fiscal buyer, the, the person who's looking after the company goals, is much more interested in how that's going to help uh, move the chains uh, on one of my initiatives rather than you know what color it comes in. And, and I think in the book, I, I bring up a, a, an example called the printer story where my office admin wanted to buy a printer and it had to have 32 pages a minute, you know, 500 page drawer. It had to have all these features to it. Me, you know, I saw the, the cost of my workbooks being, you know, too high. And if we could, you know, cut that by 20, 30%, you know, what's a thousand dollar printer or whatever it was. Right. So mm-hmm. when the salesperson called me up and asked me if I wanted to see a demo of the printer, I mean, was okay. Prince, <laughs> wow! I bet you Prince, great. I mean, it didn't matter to me as long as Anne was capable of saying, "This is the printer I want," and I was happy that this thing cost per page is going to be a lot less than what we're doing now, and so it's going to drive my workbook cost down. So Anne didn't care about workbook cost; she just cared about how fast the printer was and how supportive it was. So a demo to her was important. Because she's the one who has to change the cartridges and unjam it if it got stuck. Me, I don't know if I bought a Brother, a Rico, or an HP. I have no idea. It, it wasn't important to me. I had 
a different value proposition. So ATL, BTL is basically saying there's two value flags. We have a tendency to go to the, the below the line value flag because they want to talk about us. We want to talk about us. We all talk about us. And that's really great. But unless you talk to the ATL early, you're not going to get enough energy for your deal. So that's why we st stress while you're outbounding, try to go after both value flags early, one for fit and function, the other for energy. Right. Now, what happens if you are in a sales situation and you just can't get to the ATL? That's because we're asking BTL questions. <laughs> I called it, um, I, I've got a big family, five brothers and sisters and stuff and so on. And so when we get together before COVID, when we get together for parties and stuff, we'd have like 50 people. There's so many people, we'd have a kid table and an adult table. And the kids love it because they get to speak kid talk. The adults love it because they don't have to speak kid talk. It's different. So we train our salespeople to talk below the line stuff. Well, you know, features and functions and competitive stuff and so on. So when we get a chance to get to the ATL, we say, what do you want in our stuff? Which they don't care about. So the way you get to ATL and don't worry about gatekeepers or going around people is to sit back and say, hey, my job is to make sure you're making an investment in, in something like this. My job is to help maximize that investment. What other initiatives are out there? What other things are going on that you might be able to apply this investment to? Because Bob, the guy I'm talking to, is really good for what you want it to do. But typically, we see people use our stuff to do this, this, and this as well. And my job is to make sure we maximize the investment. Where can we go? Not who. Where can we go to find out if these other initiatives are out there? So there's numerous tactics in the book on how to, to, to work with BTL and ATL. The last thing you want to do is go to your BTL person and go, let's go talk to your boss and find out what they want in my stuff. Well, Bob is in charge of making the decision. He's, not, he's just going to sit back and say, no, 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 I'm in charge of this. Now you got to go around. It's really ugly. So you know, by thinking that there's two different value flags, which there is, is going to help you work both the ATL and BTL and not get in a situation where you know, you're stuck at the BTL and you have to go around or go over somebody's head, which is very confrontational. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still a challenge that I've encountered where, let's say, a marketer, where I'm in the agency business, they come to us and they really, uh, so many of them are completely out of touch with what the overall business goals are. <laughs> The revenue challenges are actually. Um, now, let me just pause here and say that adults' table, kids' table. Only recently, uh, Skip Miller, have I been promoted to the adult table. <laughs> now, the kids voted me off the table. And one other thing, uh, you mentioned the term "move the chains." Just for our international listeners, uh, that's an American football reference, and uh, having to do with first downs. Skip Miller, big. Cleveland Browns fan. So <laughs> that's this is true. Sorry about that. Yeah, moving the chains is the incremental way of measuring how you go down the field. You're exactly right. Right, right. So uh, let's uh, let's step back though and talk about something that is really oh, so re well, relevant, not just for sales, but also for marketing and as well as the content. And you write that when someone buys something you really don't need to look any further than emotional needs and wants. And this is on the, on, in light of having just talked about how we all love to talk about 32 pages <laughs> per yeah. minute. Explain what you mean about how, if, if uh, the importance of not forgetting about emotional needs and wants. 
Yeah, we have a tool called Three Levels of Why, which I, I got into a nice conversation <laughs> with with Simon Sinek regarding his why, why scenarios as well. Um, the first level of why is rapport. How you doing? Great. You know, what what, what kind of car you want this? I mean, it's, it's great. It's very rapport. Rationalization is the next phase. Well, you know, I probably need this. I probably need that. Well, there's this emotional wall that I'll argue with anybody that decisions are emotional based. We rationalize and then develop rapport reasons. So if that's true, the inverse must be true. And your job is to get down to that third level of why. And, you know, study after study that I, I did the research on, uh, the latest one was one from Harvard, said, you know, emotions really tie into it. So the emotional buyer at the below the line level is I'm tired of working weekends. You know, uh, I'm doing the same job over and over. There's no growth. There's no challenge. And, you know, if I get this new solution, I'll be able to grow and learn and, and be more worthy. And I, I don't have to work weekends because I don't have to get all this stuff done that I'm not getting done now. The above the line buyer emotional is, hey, you know, we can make our company goals. We'll be bigger. You know, I'll, I'll feel like I'll be able to get promoted to senior vice president then. So there's these emotional ties that are different, but big energy drivers. Any deal that we talk about uh, with, with a client, we call them L1, L2, L3. L1 is the subjective. Yeah, they, they, they hate their current vendor. Okay, great. L2. Well, they, they don't like what they're doing here because it's causing big problems. Great. L3. L3 really gets the emotion. It's mm. like, okay, this is the problem and this is the issue and the guy's going to quit or, the, you know, the, we, Doug, we, we did a, we do SKOs, sales kickoffs all the time. And what, for one company, um, we would do one every year for the four or five years in a row. And every year they'd have a user, a below the line buyer up on stage saying how great they love their system. And every time the person would get up there and tell a story, they would cry. No, they cry. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, you know, we had this big problem. I was able to use your stuff and I solved the problem and I was able to then to attend my son's first little league baseball game. Ah, everybody's going, yeah, it's hysterical. Right. Yeah, that was funny <laughs> in the book. Oh yeah. Every every year the person would cry. So that emotional both at the be above and the below line buyer are things that salespeople should feel comfortable asking. Not the challenging, what's in it for you? You know, I, you know, you know guys, if this happens, what will life be like different for you? I mean, what will you be doing differently? Will you enjoy it? Will you see this as a challenge? Those questions are fair game because people really want to talk about them. Yes, and uh, that is very important. Now, so we've talked about emotions but let's talk about something else that I guess is related to emotions, which is probably the most terrifying thing to the human brain, and that is change. And there's a reason why we all fear change. But say a bit more about what you write about when you say that if you understand change, you will have a big leg up on all your outbound efforts. The whole concept is that a company has to have a problem. If they don't have a problem, they're not going to fix it. Well, so guess what? They have a problem. Then they have to realize they have to fix the problem and they're going to have to make a change. And people hate the change. It's why we use the same toothpaste, and the same soap as we do when we were a kid. We're, just, we're not making a change. So by going outbounding and saying, hi, John, Skip Miller with the ABC company. Hey, as you look at 2021, what are some of the things you're going to have to change? Because they know doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, is it working, right? The whole definition of insanity. And 
they know that they're going to have to make some changes. And change is fearful. People hate the change. Mm-hmm. Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, fear of poverty, the, the fears of man, according to Napoleon Hill, right? So by outbounding to change, not outbounding. I love the outbound emails. Hi, I'm Skip Miller. I want to help you. You don't even know what my problem is. You don't even know what my problem is. You're telling me you want to help. We can help. <laughs> How do you know you can help? You don't even know my... This is a solution hunting for a problem. And that's the thing that makes everybody upset. You're a solution. You're not even listening to me. You're just waiting for a time to pitch. So by going after change, John, what are the biggest changes you're going to see in 2021 for you? What, Mary, what are the two or three things you're going to have to change to really uh, go after 2021's aggressive goals? People want to talk about it because they have to change. They don't know what the end game is yet. They don't know what the outcome is and they need help getting there. That is a great way to go after outbounding is going after change rather than, hey, let me pitch my product and see if it's going to stick, which is what most people do. Yes, that's a great question, asking about uh, what what things need to change. Uh, Let me just quote from one page here. You write, effective outbounding here is focused on the need for change rather than the product needs and fit. Find the pain points, I hate that term, and why they may need to change. Uh, additionally, what, why do you hate the term pain points? It's it's a it's a sales term. It's not a buy. buyers never say I have a pain point, right? They have a problem <laughs> or they have a challenge. They have a gap. Go go find the pain point. Yeah. So salespeople are actually going. Okay, what's the pain point? No, go. I've got this big thing on buyer words versus sales words. Right? No buyer wants to wants to be, go to a demo. They want to validate or educate. They don't want, they, and they'll do a demo, but they don't, you know, I, next step should be a demo, right? <laughs> same same How about a presentation or a, yeah, a yeah. proposal. Yeah, exactly right. They're all sales terms. So pain points, a sales term. You know, why don't you just say, you know, let's go find their gaps. Let's go find their challenges. Let's go find their, their problems they've got, which still need, you know, a resolution and they're going to have to change what they're doing. So that's a lot more solution centric than, okay, here's their top pain point. <laughs> okay, good for you. Wow. <laughs> right. Well, now you talked about gaps, and there's another metaphor in the book that I, I, it just really worked well, at least with this knuckleheaded reader. And it was uh, trains in the station and gaps. Could explain this idea of trains in the station. Because again, like with ATL and BTL, it, it kind of clarified <laughs> any sale I've ever done. I, could, I immediately was able to put everybody in one of those two. The trains in the station was also uh, very helpful. So <clears throat> when you're educating uh, salespeople right out of school, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the 25, 30 year olds and stuff that really don't have an executive suite background, you know, I'm the CMO, I'm the CFO, I'm the CIO. I'm, I've got a presentation I'm giving right now to for my initiatives for the year. And here's initiative one, initiative two, initiative three. And I would get this blank look. <clears throat> so I came up with the metaphor. Okay, let's talk about Mary. Mary's the CIO. She's got these trains called initiatives in her station. Now, they're in the station for a reason. They got a problem because she wants them out of her station so they can make money. And she's got to get them out of their station because new trains are coming in next quarter. So when you knock on Mary's door, you go, hi, what keeps you awake at night or whatever else? And she's going to go, you know what? I got a train on station on track one. It's missing a few first class passengers. It's missing some meals. And a typical salesperson would go, great, we can help you with that. Well, then Mary's going to go, well, go talk to Bob. He's my conductor on track one. 
And good luck getting back up to Mary because Mary builds value across trains. So your job as a salesperson, when you get to the above the line buyer, is to hunt for trains and find out why they're in the station. Those would be gaps. So when Mary, at the end of the conversation, goes, well, gee, I can see where you guys can help me with track one, track three, and track four. Watch how fast this deal goes down. So on bigger size deals, we tell salespeople, as you're outbounding, try not to be single-threaded. Here's the reason they would look at us, because you only got one train. Your stuff could probably affect two or three trains in my business, Doug. What do you, you know, I want my salespeople to outbound better. Great. What else? How about your sales managers? How are they at coaching? So they can help their salespeople outbound. Oh, yeah, we need some sales management coaching. You bet. Um, how, about comp- how about compensation? Well, we don't do compensation consulting, so I couldn't help you with that train. So when I'm done with the VP of sales, I typically have two or three trains we can make a dent in rather than just they want train outbounding. I mean, if that's what they want, that's great. But most situations aren't single-threaded. So the train metaphor, trains in the train station, really helps people, you know, manage to that. And and sales managers can sit back and say, guys, this is a big deal. We only have one train. Let's go find additional trains rather than here's the reason they're going to make a change because that rarely happens. Right, right. No problem uh, is an island. And also by finding additional trains that are in the station, that BTL buyer may just be on one of those trains. They're not really aware of or care about some of the other issues that the ATL uh, is losing sleep about. Play the metaphor out. If Bob's the conductor on track one, he typically doesn't know what's going on in track three or four. But Mary does because she owns the whole train station. So for a $50,000 investment, if she can make it hit track one and a little bit on track three and four, that's called leverage. And watch how fast Mary hit, makes this happen because she gets to go back to the executive committee and go, you know what? I just made an investment. This investment's going to affect three of my top initiatives. Oh, Mary, what a great job there. I mean, yeah. you know, so it, it, the, the metaphor really helps salespeople not to be signal threaded and managers to coach to make sure that they're really maximizing their customers' investment in them. Mm-hmm. So let's jump to uh, chapter nine about uh, messaging. And you write, here are the big five reasons an outbound prospect would be interested in talking to you. Here are the golden tickets. These big five are areas for you to modify, personalize, and tailor to your audience. Yes, you will use some of the big five more often than others, and you will change each up rather than just sending out a blanket, non-tailored email. Skip Miller, don't keep us in suspense. <laughs> can, can you talk about some of those? Jeez. Now I have to grab the book and turn to chapter nine. Yeah, it was page um, 121, but one of them is referral. Hello. No, I know what they are. Yeah. Referrals by far is the biggest one, right? If I call you and say, listen, I was talking to Mary. You know Mary. I know Mary. Even if it's you know, you go into LinkedIn and see that you know some people at Google. I know some people at Google. By use, it helps build rapport. Mm-hmm. So referrals is, you know, the crown. You yeah. Know, the more you can use that, the better. After referrals, the number one, without a doubt, is make me curious. Make me curious about my job title, about my industry, about my company. People love to find out things and, and be curious. So the way you do that is questions. By in your emails, in your conversations, the more questions you ask, the more you're going to actually be in rapport with your buyer. Now, salespeople love making statements. We are number one. We're this, we're that. That doesn't cause conversation. 
curiosity and questions does. Questions inspire something called instinctive elaboration. Mm. When, when asked a question, you've been trained to answer it. So why not make sure that you're a great question person? So in your outboundings, make me curious. And a good way to do that is to ask questions. Hey, John, you know, as you look at 2021, we're talking to a lot of CMOs. Questions we're hearing are one and two. If these are questions you're looking at, maybe we should chat. Is much better than, hi, John, you know, CMOs like yourself are saying this and this. If you're saying this too, we should chat. That doesn't cause any curiosity. So curiosity and referrals are two of the big five, without a doubt. All right. And you mentioned that questions can actually hijack your brain. <laughs> they do. Um, That's what you're talking about, right? What color is your house? Stop. You just thought about the color of your house. Yes, you I did. You weren't thinking anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. By making sure that you ask a question, you're hijacking somebody's brain. And if the question's about them, you get extra bonus points. But yet salesperson after salesperson rather would make a statement or ask a question about us rather than them. John, have you heard of us? John, let me ask you a question. If you had a system like ours, if you had a solution like ours, that's all about you. And we, we talk about that in the book, you know, stop talking about the dog, which is another metaphor. Stop yes, wolfing, yes, stop, loved stop it. Working, right? Yeah. So guys, make sure when you're asking questions, you're asking questions about the person you're talking to, their title, their job, their industry, rather than you. You'll have time later on to talk about yourself. But right now, if you're going to be making somebody curious, don't make them curious about you. Make them curious about themselves or things that they may or may not know. So right, right. Questions, questions do a great job of that. Yes. And actually, the third one of the five, we're not going to give all of them away to you, listeners. No, you need to buy his book. But uh, no, but number three was them. Make it about them. Duh. Doug, I used to go, before COVID, we used to you know, go to parties, right? And you go up to somebody and go, hi, what do you do? And they tell you what you do. You go, Skip, what do you do? I do a lot, but let's go back to you. At the end of the night, right, you walk away going, nobody really wanted to talk about me. I mean, I've written <laughs> seven books and everything. But but those people are like, oh, that's Skip Miller. He's a great guy. I don't know a lot about him, but he's a great guy. Because you just had to talk about them. And if, if you really kick in, and you can't do it fake, if you really have a net curiosity about your customers and prospects, that will come through in your emails and your phone calls. You've got to really be curious. Don't be a solution hunting for a problem really, really be curious about your customers. And that's going to come through all the time. Yes. And let's jump to uh, listening, where you say listening is like playing an instrument. The more you intentionally practice, the better you get at it. So explain what you mean about how one goes about practicing listening. And I think a lot of people think they're listening, but they're really just hearing. Yeah. So when I used to be on planes and travel a lot, I did these thing called city videos where I would just be in the city and do a two, three minute video on some topic. And a year or so ago, I was in Paris and it was snowing and I was in front of the, the Paris Opera House. And I told people the difference between listening and hearing and there's filters, you know, listening for keywords and stuff. And these filters stop us. And I said, listening and here it's like music, right? So I'm outside the Opera House and you can hear the sounds of the horns and the, the, the buses go by, but, but that's, that's just hearing. It's not really listening. In music, you hear the instruments play. That's hearing. But what's the song really trying to say? That's listening. 
and and there's a big difference. So listening's hard. It's very you know, involuntary. You really got to pay attention to what people are saying and why they're choosing words they're choosing, and not just listening for content or waiting for them to pause so you can butt in and, and break the, break break their their thing. So yeah, listening and. and hearing are different and there's a ton of good books on it um that's a skill set any salesperson if they're going to really do outbounding should really spend some time and and take a good gander at are they a good listener do they listen for what the song is trying to say or do they just wait to hear from you know blah 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 i'm looking at something in the mobile space mobile that'd be us and let me tell you about our mobile <laughs> right you know that's just keyword listening and that's not really that's not hearing that's not listening yeah so you're you're hearing them but what are they truly saying and there was a great quote in the book from tony robbins where he says effective listening requires an understanding that it is your responsibility that the other person feels understood. And that's what came to mind when you said you were at the party and they say, what about you, Skippy? Yeah, let's talk more about you. That person really didn't know anything about you, but they really liked you probably because they felt understood. Doug, the best sales call in the world is not where you hang up the phone or get off the Zoom meeting going, that was good. That was a good call. That was really good. Because while you're doing that, the customer's going, what was that? Best sales call in the world is where you hang up the phone or get off the Zoom meeting or whatever and go, we didn't say anything. I mean, we never got to our presentation. We never said anything. And the buyer's going, they heard us. They know exactly what they heard us. Yeah. Your number one job is to make sure that buyer feels that they've been heard. Yes. And as it relates to, we didn't get to our stuff. Let's go back for a minute here and talk about product knowledge. And you write that this is the... Well, though probably the thing that most salespeople feel help with, but it's usually the least important of them all. Why is that? That people feel insecure that they don't know everything about the product that they should tell, but they don't understand that that's not really as important to the buyer. It's about outcomes. It's about yeah. outcomes, right? So um, I'm looking at my iPhone right now. It's an iPhone six, right? Uh, everybody's going to laugh at, but why did I buy that iPhone? The iPhone 6S Plus, uh, was it screen resolution? Was it uh, speed? Was it size? Was it memory? No, I bought that phone for fast find. And, and the quick story is when my kids would come home from school, right? And they were away at college a couple of years ago. Um, we'd go out to eat. And when we would go out to eat, we'd order and we'd play a game called fast find. So everybody put your order in, grab your phones. Okay, ready? What's the population? Whoever got it first would get a point. And at the end, before the meal come, whoever the most points wins the game. Well, I had some iPhone 4 piece of crud thing, right? The day before they came home for, for spring break, I go to the Apple store. I buy the fastest phone. I won the game. <laughs> I didn't know what the pixel resolution or the chipset or it's about outcomes. Yes. So let's talk to our customers about how they have to make a change and what's the outcome they want for that change being made rather than here's our features and functions. What do you think? Huh? It's just, it's just, it's just not a good way of doing things here. Yes. So we've talked about a couple of things that work really well in messaging. If you just focus on the three that we mentioned, you're going to be better. Let's talk about what doesn't work. Guaranteed not to work, probably scientifically proven. And one of them you already mentioned was the dog. And I should tell listeners, there is a dog behind me asleep. But if he starts barking, it's because he's <laughs> excited. <laughs> people coming and going in the house here. But talk about some of the things that really are 
not a good idea and actually counterproductive for people to to say. So let me explain the dog. Um, So my wife wanted a dog years ago. We ended up buying this dog, right? And her reasons and my reasons were different. And I didn't really care if it was a champion breed, this, that, the other. So don't stop talking about the dog. You know, I wanted it a big dog. So my family's safe and I didn't want to spend a lot of money. So there were just two different value propositions. So we've told people for years, don't talk about yourself. And then you listen in on calls and all they do is do that. So then we just now say, that's a lot of wolfing. That's a lot of barking and people kind of get the metaphor. So in your emails, the least you say about yourself is the better without Mm -hmm. a doubt. And Mm -hmm. so stop wolfing. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I am the leader of this, this, my company does. That's an instant freaking delete. So stop talking about the dog is number one. Number two, which was fascinating was People want to write novels. They want to write 120 words max, 120 words max, 75, Doug, 75% of emails are open up on mobile devices where I'm going to give you one swipe. If it's more than one swipe, I'm not going to read it. So your listeners should, should be aware that great outbounders write their emails on their phones. It's, it's a better form factor. It's going to come across to the people who read it as very tight because if you try to write a novel at your laptop and hit send, how's it going to look on a phone? It's going to look terrible. <laughs> and it was great how you showed it in the book of a typical you know, sales email. I get many of them every day. And then you showed everyone how it looks on a mobile device. <laughs> it was like seven swipes. Yeah. Ooh. Terrible. So you know, rule number one, no wolf and no barking. Stop it. You'll have time during educate to talk about yourself. But please make sure you, know, you really look for the – if you use the word I – more than twice mm-hmm. in your outbound emails, that's too much. And number two, geez, 120 words max, which is going to freak people out. But no, you know, just think everybody's got ADD and just make sure it's really short and simple to the point. So cut it down. And if you have to, write it on your phone because mm-hmm. that, that, will, that will change your whole form factor and make it more pleasing to the reader as opposed to you who want to pontificate. So those are two of the big no-nos, too long and too much about yourself. So stop talking about the dog and keep it short. What about free? <laughs> what's I the see, value of what's the I value see that of all free? the time. How about a free consultation? <laughs> well, well, what's the value of free? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know it cost anything. So if now that it's free, free works really good in retail. You know, B2C and, and, and you know the whole thing, you, you get something for nothing. But in a B2B world, guys, free just tells me how much you're valuing what you have, which is nothing. So keep the freeze to, to pitches where you're, you're pitching somebody at the grocery store, maybe, but not really in, in the business world. Yes. Skip, let's get practical here. Talk a bit about what works well in sequencing and cadences. And, and maybe we should re- remind folks what sequencing and cadences are. Sure. The, the whole point is that you want to tell a story, right? And multiple touches in a certain time frame using, you know, different vehicles is, is sequences and cadences. So for business world, let's just take an example of a 10-day cadence. You know, sequencing, you should never go more than two or three days without a touch point. Mm-hmm. So a 10, 10, 12 touches in a two-week window is fine. So on day one, you send an email and a call. Day two, nothing. Day three, another email and a LinkedIn. Day four, a call. Day five, nothing. So whatever those things are. When we really dove into it, people were doing, you know, 
10, 20 day sequences doing three touches, four touches, the, the person's going to forget you. People mm-hmm. have very short term memories. So a good general rule is no more than two days without a touch. And the more multiple touch vehicles you use, the better. So if you just do email, that's it. Your, your chances of success are a lot lower than if you do email and social. But if you do email, social, and phone, your chances are much better. So, you know, mixing things up between in-person, which is hard now with COVID, but I mean, just in-person, regular mail, social mail, uh, the phone, as much as you can mix things up, the better off you are. Yeah, and you remind uh, readers of all the different ways that you can try to uh, get to them, and it even builds up this thing you describe as frequency illusion. Can you explain what the frequency illusion is, uh, just to encourage folks? It, 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 it's actually uh, it's a, a German uh, psychologist uh, brought it up, and the, the concept is that your brain is going to constantly look for patterns. And if it sees a pattern, it's going to start treating it with a bias. And the more touches you actually throw out there, all of a sudden your reader, your prospect is going to notice this and notice it and notice it and start becoming familiar with it. It's going to start creating a bias there. It's kind of like when you're driving down the street and, <clears throat> oh, there's another McDonald's. Oh, there's another McDonald's. All of a sudden your, your brain's going to constantly look for those you know golden arches because it's created a bias and you're not going to see the Burger King or the Kentucky Fried Chicken because you never stopped there. So that frequency illusion in outbounding by just, you know, a letter on day one, an email on day two, another email on day four, you know, Skip Miller, the ABC company, Skip Miller, the ABC company. If you keep them short, the reader's going to open them up. And if you make it about them, they're probably going to open it up. So that frequency illusion, that creating of a bias builds rapport. So I get skipped 10 touches in a two-week window, 12 touches. That's like stalking. Well, that's what you think. The buyer likes it because he's building a rapport towards it. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's make sure you put yourself in the buyer's chair. And don't tell me that t- 12 touches in a two-week window is stalking. The buyer doesn't think so. And if you make it about them, they're going to like it. If they make it about you, they're going to say, you know, please unsubscribe me. This is, a, well, that that frequency doesn't work because I just got told, well, what was your email? Oh, your email was all about you. <laughs> Jeez, you got to put these things together, man. Yeah, and you talk about how uh, voice messages, you don't ask them to call you back. You tell them what you're going to be doing next. Like, I'm going to call you again on Friday. And also, I think you said, don't make these things more than like 10 seconds or 15 seconds on a voicemail. Make your, Nobody's going to call you back. Nobody's going to call you back. But yeah. make them make them directional. Mm-hmm. Hi, John. Skip here. Hey, I sent you an email yesterday. I'll send it again. Especially that, that page two of the attachment. I thought it was really well done and it could apply to what you're doing. Talk soon. Uh, I'll try again in a, in a couple of days. See you. Bye. Mm-hmm. Really short, but directional. Have them do something rather than, hi, John. Skip Miller here. Hey, I'm sorry I missed you. If you can give me a call back at, they're never going to call you back. But you can use a voicemail as a, you know offensive tool having them do something rather than call me back because rarely will they call you back. Right, right. And you use of the word offensive, it reminds me of a swarming offense like in football where, where you know, there's, a, there's a, at least a half dozen ways, different, different mediums that you can reach out to uh, buyers. And also you talk about how the more mediums you use, uh, the more effective you'll be. The more questions you ask, uh, the more effective you'll be. Let's let's uh, talk about um, another 
topic here. And that you, you're right that if you hear someone tell you sales is a numbers game, you should tell them they're half right. To be successful at outbounding, it's about two things, skills and activities, skills and activities. Explain. So when you were 10, you were told sales is a numbers game, right? Got to have the numbers. The numbers got to add up, do the math. You know, if you want, you know, 30 prospects, you got to, you know, 10X that plus 5X that. And it's right. Sales is a numbers game, but it's also a skill game. How well are you at listening? How well are you are building a rapport? How well do you do homework? How well do you, you know, follow up and follow through on things? Right? So this, the skills is something we ignore. We just think, you know, I'm not good at prospecting. Well, if you increase this, this, and this, what do you think? If you would increase your listening skills, if you would increase your questioning skills, if you would really increase your ATL questioning skills, your Mm -hmm. above-the-line questioning skills rather than your below-the-line questioning skills, which is all about product and all about us. So those are areas that salespeople and managers can really work on, not just, okay, guys, you're you're short here. We got to make 50 calls today. Well, that's a check in the box. I made the 50. I was terrible at them, but I, you know, so therefore, you know, you're not going to get good response. Focus on the skill sets you need as well as the activities. So in the book, we put together a scorecard. So score yourself. How well are you at these skills and these activities? And this probably should show you where you need help and, you know, make sure you, you, you know, use your left control knob to do left stuff and your right control knob to do right stuff and just don't crank up the numbers. Because doing a whole bunch of stuff badly isn't going to really help you, right? Right. Yeah, it was a great uh, a great uh, table there. You know, along with ATL BTL trains. One of the other big ideas in the book that really resonated with me, and I say that because trust me, I've done it all wrong <laughs> at some point <laughs> or another. <laughs> but you say if you want an outbounding mission statement. It is what is the size of the problem, and I, you touched on that earlier. But if I just had the answer to that in any sales situation I've ever been in, I would have been a lot more successful. What is the size of the problem? And I, I guess my question is again, kind of like I talked about earlier. What advice do you have for folks, uh, if not just for me, when I'm dealing with a below the line person, a BTL, and I just can't seem to get to the ATL or a better understanding of what the size of the problem is, where we're talking about, like for you, it was cost of the the booklets rather than pages per minute. Right. So think of it this way, right? Your customer's got to make a change. And most of your listeners offer something where you can buy small, medium, large, good, better, best. You can buy this much or this much, right? You want to size it correctly. If you don't know the size of the problem, how can you offer a solution? I'll go to a salesperson and say, okay, tell me about the ABC company. Well, it's a deal we're working on right now. It's worth 50 grand. What's the size of the problem? Well, I don't know that, but I mean, it's a 50 seater, it's 50 grand, and that's what we're going to sell. But if you don't know the size of the problem, how do you know that's the right answer? Well, that's what they're looking for. Well, but I, so I tell them, do me a favor. I'm sure you live in a town where there's a car dealer. Uh, go to the car dealer and say, hi, how much is a car? And the salesperson's going to go, well, which one? You're going to go, no, 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 you guys sell cars. How much is a car? And the guy's going to go, well, which car are you looking for? Well, I don't know. I just want to know how much a car is. <laughs> and you know, about a minute, the salesperson's going to see is a, is a smart aleck. But the whole concept is, how can you quote somebody 50 grand, 100 grand, 10 grand, 500 bucks a month, whatever it is, 
without knowing the size of the problem. If they've got a problem that's going to affect them 20 million a year, you may want to sell them something for a thousand a month as opposed to 500 months because they're going to get relief in half the time. No, no, no. We have to do this land expand thing and we, we're going to get at them with this nice thing here and we'll expand later on. But you're not helping your customer. If you can help your customer at a thousand, no, no, they only have budget for 500. Oh, but no one knows the size of the problem. If we, if we know the size of my definition, Doug, of above the line buyers is they have the ability to rob Peter to pay Paul. They can find the money. Well, heck, we only budgeted five, but if this thing can make that much of a dent, I'll find the other five. I'll find the other money. <laughs> ETLs have a budget, right? <clears throat> this is the only budget we have. And if, and if we have to go over budget, I got to go 10 cup for extra money, right? So making sure that we're focusing on what's the size of the problem gets everybody aligned. It guarantees me you've had an ATL above the line talk. The above the line buyer has acknowledged there's a problem and we know what the size of the problem is. So if the size of the problem is a is million dollars and your quote is two million, well, that's kind of silly. They wouldn't spend two million to fix a million dollar problem. Mm-hmm. But if the size of the problem is twenty million, and you know, ten percent market share, five percent cost, net promoter score, whatever the goals are, and for ten thousand dollars they can make a dent on twenty million, they'll find the money, and that's mm. what you really want to do. So that whole size of the problem is a great motto for a salesperson because the BTL buyer, who's you know, I got budget to buy this. What's the size of the problem? Well, I don't know. But I just know this is my budget. Well, we have to know what the size of the problem is. You know, I don't want to oversell you. I don't want to undersell you. I want to make sure we understand what the problem is. Where can we go to find that out is a much better question. So what is the size of the problem <laughs> is the number one question to, to, to have answered for you to determine if you've got a good qualified prospect. So, uh, Skip, uh, for episode 300 of the Marketing Book Podcast, I had a friend of yours on, Jeb Blunt, uh, yeah. to talk about his book, uh, virtual selling. <laughs> and in, in that particular book, he said that about 50% of what they do in sales training is getting people to pick up the phone. <laughs> I could not believe that. But he said, yeah, I'd like to tell you that there's other things that we, we they do a lot of things just like you do. But he said, it's about getting people to pick up, <laughs> pick up the phone. So on page 213, you write, readers should stop reading the book at that point if they disagree with what you say, which is that if you want to outbound effectively, you have to use the phone. So, Skip, I, I got to believe that you have the same kind of pushback that <laughs> a guy like Jeb Blunt has. Yeah. What do you say to someone who says that phone calling is just old school and not worth it, perhaps to a lot of the younger people listening to this interview on their smartphone who are not aware? perhaps like my kids, that you can actually punch some numbers into the little smart device and call your dad. <laughs> Rather than text him, yeah. So, I, you know, Jeb's a, a good guy, obviously. And, and the whole concept is, guys, it's immediate two-way conversation. We just don't have the skills to, 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 to cover that. When you call somebody and they pick up the phone and they go, hello, what are you doing? Well, you're interrupting them. So the first thing they want to do is get you off the phone. So you got to know how to overcome that objection. So, you know, I make 10 dials and I get people on the phone. They go, nope, I'm not interested. Bang. No, no, this is a bad time. Bang. Right. Well, who wants to put themselves in that area of so much rejection? So then we go down this, this rat hole, right? You know, I'm not good at it. I don't know what to say. I'm not going to bother people. 
you know, I don't want to, you know, we start rationalizing. So mm-hmm. the whole concept is by hitting the send button, right? I don't have to have two-way feedback. I, I sent out 20 emails today and there were good emails. Well, pick up the phone, right? So without a doubt, the, the ability of people to really work the phone. And we break it into three sections. Oh, yeah. Section, section one is the first 10 seconds. When the buyer says, hello, what can you do? After that, with, a, with if the buyer goes, okay, what's this about? You better have a lead in. And that lead in could be, I need direction. I need this from you. So you really got to be prepared on that. For, and then after the, the lead in is the, the next minute or two. So you got to really be prepared on outbounding with the phone and and have the skills to be good at it. Because if not, you're going to run into a brick wall, go, wow, that wall hurts. I'm not going to run into it anymore. I'm just going to do my emails and my social emails, which is great. But without the phone, you're limiting yourself to one-way communication, not two-way communication. And the best outbounders we've seen, I wouldn't say are masters at the phone. I mean, they're good, but they're good because they worked on their skill sets, not because they just used it because they had to make the calls to check in the box. I made my 50 dials today. <laughs> but they also used the phone in the yeah. first place. Good <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one other uh question is, uh, which is, I've seen work really well, and, and Marcus Sheridan talks about this in, in his books, uh, and it's about the idea of giving your prospect homework. I found that that works really, really well. And can you explain what that is in terms of, uh, you know, qualifying? As a salesperson, we grew up give, 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 give. If I do what they tell me to do, and I do it well, I'll get the order. So we take that mentality to, 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 to sales. If I do, if I did what my teacher tells me to do, I'll get an A. If I do what my mentor tells me to do, I'll get an at a boy or at a girl. So we've been trained that way. So the whole concept of give, 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 give to ultimately get is what we've been trained on. And I think we got to really get some of our buyers sweat equity. We really want them engaged. So giving people homework assignments early is really important. Hey, John, love to do that. Um, is there a couple slides in your in your in your deck that you're going to giving to your manager that you could share with me so I can really understand what the issues are? Is it is a legitimate discussion? I had somebody send me a slide deck the other day. I said, can you, you you're probably preparing your slide deck for the executive team. Can you want to send me a copy of that? Well, the problem is I got 79 slides I had to read, but I got 79 slides that really made me understand the customer's issues, so I can really talk succinctly about them rather than just you know talk about sales training, which which is fine. But I was really able to understand their problem. And uh, homework assignments can be something as simple as, John, send out an email to every attendee that's coming to the presentation going, here's the two or three things that we're going to be talking about on our presentation. Could you circle star highlight the top two or three so I can make sure we maximize your time? Now, if they don't send that email back, that's going to tell you how much energy this deal has. Uh So these give gets are great ways to really get the client engaged. You don't want to trick them. You don't want to just give them a homework assignment just to see if they want to do it. They'll be able to smell that and it's just stupid. But Mm -hmm. really work on in stage one, what are the things I need from the customer as well as what do they need from us? In stage two, what are the gives and the gets? And by organizing yourself that way, the customer is going to be engaged. They're going to be working with you and they're putting some sweat equity into the deal. And you can judge, does this deal have energy? I'd honestly, with the losses as far as qualifying a deal. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the last things I want to ask about, and I don't normally have books about sales management and uh, on this show, but I did want to ask one about for the sales managers out there. Um, at the, at the, toward the end of the book, you write that outbounding is not successful because salespeople are fearful, unorganized, and do not stick to a cadence, period. Another good reason outbounding is not as successful as it could be is because managers do not know how to manage, coach, and reward outbounding efforts, period. Can you touch on what some of the things are that sales managers should be doing? Yeah. I'm a big, big fan of something called uh, indicators versus trailing indicators. And results are trailing indicators, right? You know, the results are things that have happened already. So I think managers should coach the leading indicators. What makes a good person outbound, right? Skills and activities, as we talked about earlier. How well is a manager coaching to listening skills? How well are they coaching to above the line skill sets? How well are they coaching to hunting for multiple trains? I do a lot of sales kickoffs. And let's say the target market for company A is CIOs. What keeps a CIO awake at night in 2021? There's tons of articles. I'll give a presentation on that and people are going, that's the greatest thing. Guys, you could have looked it up. Where's a, where's a manager looking these things up and coaching their salespeople on, guys, if you're going to outbound, you know, Gartner says, the CIOs, these are the top five things. Why don't we build some questions around this? Rather than make your 50 today, make sure you make your 50 dials, let's go. I mean, that's not helping anybody. That's not coaching. That's like, you know, that's brutality. That's what that is. So better manager coaching around skill sets and activities is, is more of a leading indicator than a trailing indicator. If you really work hard at those skills, my team is great at listening skills, opening rapport skills, talking above the line buyer skills, really knows the industry skill sets. You're going to get the results rather than just looking at you know activity. So managers need to coach to what causes results to happen, not just coach the results. Yes, and there's some wonderful uh, dashboards uh, in that whole section for uh, for sales managers. So, Skip, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Change. You know, your customers have to make a change. They can't do doing the same thing. They need help with that. Go forward on really going after my customers and my territory, my prospects probably have to make a change. Now, if they don't have to make a change, the trains in the station aren't really ones I can affect. And I'll wait six months because those trains will leave and new trains will come in. But if they really focus on how can I help my customers change rather than how can I sell them something or how can I get get, in, get their presentation? If they really focus on my job is to help my prospects change. And if I can help them change, that's great. If not, no harm, no foul. Uh, it would be all about change, Doug. Great answer. <laughs> Well, let me just ask uh, the, the the people listening, what is just one thing a listener could do today uh, to, to put in action one of the many ideas from the book that we've, we've talked about? Be natural curious. Stop thinking about, you know, how to get things across and really just be kicking your, the greatest salespeople we've seen just have a natural curiosity. They really just want to know why, you know, why would you guys want to do this? Why do you want to do that? So, in your outbounding emails, right? Please make sure there are questions about them rather than things about you. Less woofing, less barking, and, and really be curious about your customers. You know, 
that's going to help you a lot more. That's what they can change right now is really in their outbounding messages, focus on the customer's issues, challenges, concerns, and, you know, you know, hi, my name is, that, which is an instant delete. Right, right. And that is, uh, that natural curiosity dovetails so beautifully with trying to find out the size of the problem. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah it does. Yeah. So what books have most inspired your work and career, Skip? Boy, um, I, again, I try not to read other people's books because they, they I don't want to be plagiaristic and stuff and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I can't sure. say, you know, Good to Great was always a good book, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mac Hanna wrote a, tons of good books regarding value selling 20 years ago. Um, Spin Selling by Neil Rackham's always been good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jason uh, Jordan, Cracking the Sales Management Code. Uh, he's a good guy. Um, Jeb, Jeb writes tons of great books. So those are probably the, the people that I would recommend and stuff. But you know, what book probably had the most influence on me? Probably Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and um, just the whole fears and stuff and so on, without a doubt. And then How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean- oh. Those are two of the best books, and they must have been written, what, 90? I think uh, Dale Carnegie's was in the, the 30s, and uh, those are those are two phenomenal books. Uh, yeah, Think, Think and Grow Rich, right, came yeah. from the, the original works in the, in the early 1900s, uh, The Laws of Success. But then in the 70s or whatever, they rewrote it and called Think and Grow Rich. But great, great authors and great books. Yes, yes. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to? seeing come out? Well, you mentioned Jeb's books. Jeb's are really good. Um, I'm halfway through Barack Obama's book, which is fascinating. I'm, not that I'm a Democrat or Republican, but I just find it fascinating, his book there. so It's a big book. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 20, 24, 24 hours on the audio tape. <laughs> right, right. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. And I think, isn't he supposed to write some more? Uh, there is there is a volume two. Yeah, I guess there is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but it's fascinating, to, it's fascinating listening to the president of the United States, former president, talk to you in a book. It almost makes you feel like you're having a one-on-one conversation. Oh, he did the audio too. Oh, yeah, he did. Oh. Fascinating. Yeah. Because then he puts the, all the inflammations to it. So it's just fascinating book. I mean, agree or disagree, it's not part of it. But just you know how he got his start and you know he was broke and you know they weren't going to run for office and stuff. So it just it just fascinating book. I liked it. Terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable to your your site and your LinkedIn profile and all links to all the books that you've mentioned. And I hope that uh, some listeners will reach out to you and thank you for being a guest uh, on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Outbounding, Win New Customers with Outbound Sales and End Your Dependence on Inbound Leads. The author is Skip Miller. Skip, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. You asked some great questions. So it was fun to, to get engaged and all of a sudden the time flew. So thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. 
If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you.